from the uh, Romans. Um, and one of the things that most people don't recognize is that, I mean, because when, when you think about the ancient world, do you think about the ancient world as being more conservative or less conservative than modern day? Generally speaking, you always think, you know, people were much stuffier and more rigid back then and that they suddenly got, um, they became more enlightened as, light, as uh, time went on. But the fact was that the, uh, the Romans were very loose in their uh, mores on a whole host of different subjects as we've seen. One of the things that uh, we already discussed before was how um, having women in the priesthood, women in religious rituals, uh, women taking place in religious, uh, taking part rather in religious observances was the norm in Roman and Greek society. Uh, it was Christianity that actually brought in uh, the idea that uh, only men should be uh, taking part in the in the worship uh, or leading the worship, we should say, and preaching and so on. That was a, that was a novum in the ancient world. And also, uh, Christian restrictions regarding uh, marriage and divorce were also fairly new. These were things that uh, the Romans had not practiced. Even the uh, certain, as we'll see, uh, certain Jewish schools um, advocated very loose views, especially regarding uh, divorce. Um, and we'll discuss that in more detail. But Caleb, what should we do before we get started? We should pray, exactly, very good, well spotted. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Sovereign Lord, as we come before you today and we uh, discuss the ways in which things have changed and the way things have uh, stayed the same and what your word teaches, I pray, Lord, that you would be the light of our minds. Help us to remember that it's not uh, the consensus of people within society that determines what is true and what is false but rather it's your word and its directions that guide us to truth and that outside of that word, Lord, we, we do not have an objective standard and trying to form our morals based upon what the world believes is like trying to fix your position uh, by taking a reference to a floating piece of driftwood, which is constantly moving. It's useless. Lord, we, we thank you therefore that you are that, um, that immovable uh, standard uh, the one who is always telling us the truth by whom we should judge all things. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to be taking a look today uh, again at 1 Corinthians 7. But let's go to the first slide. All right. Here's our happy Roman couple again. Okay. Let's say they aren't quite so happy. Um, but let's talk about some of the undergirdings of uh, Roman thought. Uh, on marriage and divorce. And we remember that uh, Corinth, although it was in Greece, uh, physically located in Achaia, the capital of Achaia, was it more of a Roman or a Greek society at the point at which Paul was talking to them? Roman, that's right. The original Greek population had been wiped out. That's not to say that people um, of Greek extraction would not have lived in Corinth. But the overriding uh, mores and um, direction of the, uh, the colony of Corinth were, were overwhelmingly Roman at this point in time. All right, so let's go to the first slide. Second slide, I guess. How divorce changed the Roman Empire and how Christianity changed divorce. Let's move on to the next. All right, so... We want to talk about the time before Augustus first, uh, and we remember that Augustus, uh, when did he uh, come into power, roughly? Yes, Graham? Uh, when Jesus was killed, so 32 AD. No, 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 no. 
Augustus was already um, uh, long dead by that time. We're going to, why don't I have my, my fly shooter with me? I'll get you later. I warn you. Um, stay away from that. Uh, no, try again. Augustus or Octavian, who was whose uh, adopted son? Mm -hmm. Julius Caesar's adopted son, that's correct. Mm -hmm. A lot of different relations to Caesar, which Augustus was only too happy to exploit. Um, all right, so Caesar is reigning at about 0 AD. Okay, that's his, his rule is, is firmly entrenched uh, by that time. As a matter of fact, the Caesar uh, under whom Christ was crucified was actually Tiberius Caesar. Um, not, uh, and that he was the successor, obviously, to Augustus after Augustus's long reign. Augustus brought in a, uh, a number of reforms. Uh, he found Roman society to be too loose, too immoral in very, uh, many different ways. And so he worked to, uh, to try to tighten up its morality. Under classical Roman law, marriage was based on consent with the permission of any relevant guardians, a man and woman could declare themselves married as long as both were past the age of puberty. So it seemed not unreasonable that if one of the parties withdrew consent, then the marriage was over. So essentially, what do we call that when you can just declare your marriage over? Yes. No fault divorce. No fault divorce. Moving to the next. Following this principle, uh, any man or woman who wished to do so could become divorced simply by sending the partner a letter or even by declaring in front of witnesses that the marriage was over. There was no such thing as joint marital property, and any children of the marriage belonged to the father, so there was little to argue about. So um, what, did the, what did the bride get back on divorce? She got back her dowry. What did the, the husband get? everything else, including the children. He also kept uh, the property uh, that they had. So um, that would include the house, ground, slaves, etc. Moving on to the next. If the husband initiated the divorce, he had to return the full dowry. Knowing this, the givers of advice in every society has such people urged husbands to keep the full dowry in a separate account so that they would be able to fulfill this obligation when the time came for the courts were adamant on the subject. You would get in big trouble, for instance, if you, um, you divorced your wife and you were bankrupt and could not give her her dowry back. So uh, although your, your desire might be to spend uh, her dowry, you were going to be in serious trouble with Roman law if you could not hand the dowry back at the time of her divorce. Moving to the next. Particularly large dowries were a major impediment to divorce as a high financial penalty had to be paid by the one who initiated it. So that would actually keep uh, some marriages together simply because he could not repay uh, the dowry that he had received. Going to the next one. And the bigger the dowry, the more power the wife had in the relationship as long as she remained chaste. If the wife, or in some cases her father, initiated the divorce, the husband was allowed to keep one-sixth for each child up to three. This would be the ancient equivalent of what? Child support. Child support. If that applicable, another sixth for her adultery. Um, so if she committed adultery, she would immediately forfeit a sixth of her dowry. And if she had five kids and committed adultery, how much of her dowry would she forfeit? Uh, all of her. All of her, yeah. So, oh, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. Fourth, sixth. Very good, Jamie. So she couldn't become entirely destitute. All right. As I said, my, my grasp of 
history is okay, my grasp of math is unspeakably bad. So let's move on. Okay, who's that? Augustus. That's Augustus Caesar, right. The first major change came with the Augustan marriage laws. A husband was required to divorce an adulterous wife or face charges of pimping. And the final pe financial penalty against her was increased to half of her dowry and a third of any other property she possessed. On top of that, she was then exiled to an island. And they had many uh, islands. Where, uh, what islands of exile uh, are famous in the New, New Testament? Or what island? Patmos, right. That was uh, a famous exile island. Now, um, believe it or not, that problem of um, husbands, uh, so to speak, leasing out their wives uh, within Roman society and um, the, the swinging single kind of scene within uh, Rome was actually a big problem when Augustus came on the scene. Uh, to say that the morals of the upper-class Romans was loose doesn't even come close to it. They, they were pretty execrable. Even he was disgusted. Yes? Which one? Australia. Australia, that's a penal colony. Hadn't been discovered by the Romans, that's true. But uh, yes, it was used by the, the Britons and all sorts of, of Irish people were sent there uh, and Scots and, and other malcontents uh, and they're formed of obviously a new nation. Moving on. Um, so there were cultural concerns that grew uh, even from Augustus's time about easy divorce. Uh, and these things are nothing new. By the turn uh, by the third century, many in Rome were having serious reservations about the ease with which people could get out of a marriage. In other words, their marriages were lasting for inconsequential amounts of time, and uh, because marriages were constantly being broken, what else was declining very quickly? Birth rates, Birth rates were declining, yeah. Sorry, next. <laughs> Some were concerned about the impact divorce was having on children but others simply felt that society had a vested interest in preserving existing relationships and objected to the idea that a husband or wife could break up a marriage when there was no compelling reason moving to the next. Uh, so the fellow in the bust in the background, who is Constantine, obviously. Constantine brought in a number of reforms. In 331, Constantine issued an edict imposing serious penalties on unilateral divorce. What is a unilateral divorce? Yeah, when one person simply declares uh, that they are, they are getting a divorce, except in they, only one side really wants to have the divorce, except in certain circumstances. If a woman divorced her husband without proving him to be a murderer, a preparer of poison, or a disturber of tombs, I thought that was a grave robber. That's, that's an interesting one. She was to lose her entire dowry and be deported to an island, again, with the island. So um, anyway, moving to the next. Similarly, if a man divorced his wife without proving she was an adulteress, a preparer of poison, or a go-between, uh, he had to return her dowry. If he uh, should remarry, his ex-wife was allowed to come into his home and seize his new wife's dowry. Note that Constantine's law imposed penalties, but it did not invalidate the divorce. So you would pay fines and so on and have to uh, um, uh, undergo the, uh, the penalties, but the divorce still stood. The new law did not affect divorces that were agreeable to both partners. So if it was uh, a, uh, a divorce that was um, both, both sides wanted to get divorced, even if it was no fault, it didn't invalidate it. Uh, I have some ideas, but I'm not going to speculate on, on what that meant. So um, moving to the next. Uh, but generally, I think it refers to uh, the, male ver the female version of a pimp. So, yeah. um, 
a panderer. First Corinthians, that's my guess. I'll look into it though and, and, uh, and then horrify you um, via message. First uh, <laughs> Corinthians 7, 10 through 17. Let's go ahead and read. Open up at you Bibles. You should have Bibles. What happened to all the Brunsons? They've like disappeared. I know the Timothy. You had to? Got it. All right. You and Caleb are the representatives of the next generation now. No pressure, Reagan, but you know. All right, who wants to start reading? Who, who? Okay, Nick? No, uh, <laughs> go ahead and read through. Let's have you read through the end of 13. Okay, um, who would like to take it up from there? Joy. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, her children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. Um, and let me, I will do 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. We'll stop uh, there for the moment. So let's go to the next slide. All right. First, Paul discusses the subject of believers married to believers, which is obviously the only kind of marriage Christians should initiate. Now, um, one of the things that uh, we, we see in the ancient world was, um, generally speaking, uh, people married within their ethnicity, and generally speaking, they married within uh, their religious observances, but that was not always the case. Uh, so, for instance, it was common for uh, Romans, uh, that is Roman men, to marry women uh, from the places where they ended up settling, so Roman soldiers, uh, who were sent to different areas of the, or who uh, got their retirement property because uh, Roman soldiers served uh, waiting for their payoff, their marriage, and land to farm. After they left the legion, they were forbidden to marry while they were still in the legion. You had to be an officer to be married in the Roman legions. So uh, they were always looking for the colony, the land, and the women. They would often marry, so for instance, a Roman man would often marry a Greek woman, or you might get a man who was recruited in Spain or Dalmatia and so on. And it's very possible that the deities, and this is one of the benefits, quote, of pluralism within the Roman Empire. They didn't really care who you worshipped, um, you know, as long as it was one of the accepted uh, cultuses within the Roman Empire. So you might get somebody whose uh, patron deity was... Um, uh, was Artemis married to somebody whose patron deity, uh, deity was Jupiter and so on. Um, it did not really matter that much within that, uh, in that pantheistic and, and pagan um, uh, or 
what's the word I'm looking for? Polytheistic. There you go, polytheistic situation. Um, of course, though, it mattered a great deal if your spouse was suddenly a member of an illegal cult, all right, or a group uh, that was frowned upon. We need to remember Christianity was not the only um, cultus within the Roman Empire that, uh, that got a bad name. After 70 AD, what uh, particular religion was suddenly very, uh, had a very bad name? Yes, Graham. Judaism, they uh, suddenly all of the protections that Jews had had under the Roman Empire prior to the, Rome, uh, the Jewish rebellion of 66 AD were removed. Other, uh, anybody know of any other cultuses that were uh, frowned upon? Mithraism often got in trouble um, because of its secret nature. They had secret rites where they would, uh, for instance, the initiate, uh, believe it or not, they did this. They had a two layer platform uh, with, you know how a deck is built with, uh, with slats in the boards and so on? They would bring a person in uh, to a, a uh, darkened room and then above him uh, on a platform, a bull would have its throat cut and then the person would be bathed in the blood of the bull. Uh, this was how one became an initiate in Mithraism. It became very popular amongst troops, but unfortunately because it was or fortunately, depending on your perspective, because it was a secret society, it was often banned in various places because they were afraid of what? What were the Romans terribly afraid of? Rebellion, treason. Any opportunity that people had to get together and plan or plot against the state, any time that they asserted a higher power than the state, any time that they, uh, they were doing things that were not uh, immediately overseen by the state, the, Roman, uh, the Romans got very upset. They were always on the lookout for rebellion, so they tried to keep these things locked down. So you could get in trouble for your spouse's particular um, religious beliefs, and several divorces happened uh, necessarily when uh, women or men became Christians and suddenly the state was looking at them with a jaundiced eye, and their spouse said, uh, no thank you, and, um, and got out of that situation. It happened frequently amongst uh, women. Um, so. Within the Christian faith, though, one of the things that we learn quite clearly is that we should not be unequally yoked. Um, move to the next slide. Now, when we're talking about this, starting with verse 10, now to the married I command you, not I but the Lord. Do not get tripped up by the verse, yet not I but the Lord. Some people have said, oh, well, what Paul's discussing here isn't actually scripture. Is that true? No. Okay, it's still scripture in verse 10, and I, not the Lord, in verse 12. Paul is not indicating that one is the teaching of scripture and the other is just pious advice from him. This is just my opinion, guys. You know, take it or leave it. That's not the way Paul is speaking. He's, uh, he's giving a definitive reading, going to the next. Uh, there is no such thing, obviously, as uninspired scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. So if that's not uh, <coughs> what Paul means, what do you think Paul means? I'm going to give you the answer, but let's, let's hear. Uh, Dave, what do, you, what do you got to say? Bingo, right. Um, this is not something specifically that I received from the Lord. This is something I received from the Holy Spirit, but Jesus did not speak to this particular issue during his lifetime. So moving to the next. The distinction that Paul is making in verses 10 and 11 is between what Christ specifically taught in his earthly ministry and what Paul is now teaching. In verse 10 and 11 uh, are therefore a recapitulation of the teaching of Christ uh, 
uh, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say there. Verse 10 and 11 are therefore a recapitulation of the teaching of Christ and his earthly ministry. So um, he's not actually recapitulating. I, I got that. I missed a uh, negative somewhere there. I do that often. Let's move on. Verse 11 indicates the beginnings of Paul's specific teaching on issues concerning divorce that have arisen amongst the Gentile Christians of the Corinthian congregation. These were not issues during the ministry of Christ, so they were not uh, addressed. Why, was, why were they not issues during the ministry of Christ? Believers marrying unbelievers and so on. Go, go ahead, you're on the right track. Right. Um, Christ's ministry was almost entirely centered where? Just in two, two regions, really. Galilee and Judea. Right. Jerusalem being the, the capital of Judea. Um, he does travel outside of those bounds, but did Samaritans marry Jews? No. Oh, no. And generally speaking, uh, the Jews within Palestine did not uh, intermarry. They, uh, they, that was a big no-no. The Romans sometimes did. And if you did intermarry, what immediately happened to you as a general? You were excommunicated. You were cut off. So suddenly you became part of Roman society instead of at the same level of your, as your husband. We were no part of the Jewish community any longer. Moving to the next. Uh, so what was the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ regarding the sanctity of marriage? Well, in Matthew 19.3... Go ahead and turn in Matt, into Matthew. We're going to... Yes, Joy. So, was Herod ever considered unclean because of how much he hung out with? Oh, yeah. No, Herod was, a, um, Herod was wildly unpopular uh, with the Jews um, that he was governing uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, his ancestry was Idumean. Right. Uh, the Idumeans had been... Um, uh, converted to Judaism uh, during the period following the Maccabean report, uh, uh, rebellion, but they still were not really considered full-fledged Jews. And so, um, and, and yes, his, uh, the Herodians' desire to go along with Hellenism in the first place and to make nice with the Romans and to eat with Romans and so on uh, made them a disgusting people in the eyes of the, uh, the, the uh, Pharisees. Uh, who would like to start reading Matthew? Hey, Reagan, why don't you start reading? All right, Graham, do, do six and seven. So then they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, that what, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command give a certificate of divorce? Jamie? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. 
from the beginning and was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Okay, so next. Uh, Sujin? Okay, so I, I hope you have Matthew 19 in front of you. We're going to make some references to it. So overall, the main message is stay married. Uh, there's nothing wrong with marriage. It is a good thing. The, uh, the impetus, okay, is definitely against what? <coughs> Divorce. Now, who is horrified by this teaching? Mm -hmm. read, read there. I mean, they're like, why would you get married then? The disciples, all right? So his own disciples, why? Graham? Because they thought marriage only had meaning in the context of like doing what you want. Okay, that would be a subjective view of it. Yeah, but because within their society, was divorce difficult? No, even amongst the Jews, believe it or not, it was not that difficult. Certainly the idea that this was supposed to be lifelong no matter what, they, you know, they whoa. So if my wife is a shrew, but uh, she doesn't commit sexual immorality, I have to live with her for the rest of my life? What if she burns the food constantly? What if she's a terrible cook? What if she nags me all day long? I'm stuck. Is that what, it's better not to marry then. You know, that's literally what they were, they were saying uh, to Christ. They are, they are amazed by this teaching. Jesus, though, is pointing out that divorce laws, the divorce, the way divorce was being treated by the Jews at this point in time, is not good, is not scriptural. It's another one of the things where we think of the Pharisees as guys who were constantly raising the bar on the law of God, but they weren't actually. What they were trying to do constantly was create loopholes and lower the bar of, God, of God's law so they could jump over it. And Christ was always showing them, no, you don't even come close to clearing the bar. It's one of the reasons why I'm here. In fact, it is the reason why I'm here. Because you're never going to be able to fulfill the law yourself. So, marriage is good. Supposed to be lifelong. Divorce is permissible under certain circumstances. But it's not a good thing. Okay, we got that? So what does Jesus say about divorce? He says there is a reason. He lists a reason in Matthew 19. It's called the acceptive clause. What's the acceptive clause? Yeah, well, not adultery. Sexual morality. It's, yes. But full-fledged adultery, what was the penalty for adultery? You didn't need, actually, a divorce in the case of adultery in Jesus' time because, you know, they would... They were supposed to hit your offending spouse with rocks on the head until they died. So, um, yeah, but they only bring the one. So. <laughs> well, they, they did in that, in that particular circumstance, yes. They were supposed to bring both of the offending parties in that time. Um, one of the problems that they had at this point in time, though, was they, they seldom could carry out that, um, uh, the stoning. Jesus would have gotten in trouble not only with uh, whoever he offended, but he would also have gotten in trouble with the Romans. Why? Because you can't murder. I mean, I mean, Capital I punishment. Right, capital punishment was reserved to the Romans. Moving to the next. All right, in fact, sexual relations within marriage are good, normal, and honorable. This is something we need to remember. Um, sex within marriage is not a necessary evil. Oh, there's no other way to make babies, so I guess we've got to do this. That's not the way the Bible views it. In fact, this is the only place where they are good. 
In Hebrews 13.4, we read, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Okay, so it's normal and okay. Moving to the next. Uh, Ephesians 5.22 through 33, we don't have time to discuss that now, but it shows that marriage was given to us in order to be a model of what? The believer's union with the church, right. So it's the, it's the second closest union that we can have. The only union that's closer is the one that it's supposed to be a model of, which is the believer's union with Christ. Right. So the man is supposed to be to the wife who? Christ. And the wife is supposed to be the church, okay, in, in that relationship. We're supposed to be modeling that perfectly. Uh, do we do that? No, we fall really far short. Moving to the next. But if believers have been divorced for no good reason, i.e., uh, have been divorced, uh, i.e. the porneia, or sexual immorality, Jesus mentions as a legitimate reason for divorce. The path is singleness or reconciliation. All right? If you get divorced for a bad reason, then you're not supposed to remarry. Okay? You're supposed to reconcile or remain single. That is uh, actually what's being called uh, for. Let's go to the next. So this, oh, I misspelled it. It should be pornea, not ponia. Um, so what is pornea? Uh, the word translated in the above verse by the NKGB as sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which is usually rendered fornication. Here again, the Lord's choice of words is important for if Christ had wanted to say, except for adultery, he could have done so. The Greek word for adultery is moikia. Uh, his reason for not using moikia has been an issue of debate even within the Reformed community. I'm going to give you a for instance. Let's move to the next. Dun, dun, dun. Some have inferred that by not using the word for adultery, which would have meant sexual sin within the marriage covenant, Christ was indicating circumstances in which that marriage covenant had not yet come into being, i.e. sexual sin during the engagement period, which was what who was in danger of being accused of? Mary. That's right. Uh, this thesis, however, is doubtful. Dr. J.G. Voss offers the following explanation for the uh, voice of words. That's uh, Gerhardus Voss's son, incidentally. Moving to the next. In Matthew 19.9, it is possible to hold that Christ uses the word pornea not in contradistinction to moikia, but rather in its wider senses, including sin either before or after marriage. Suppose that Jesus had used the word moikia, adultery, instead of pornea, fornication, in Matthew 19.9. And the verse would read in English, whoever, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for adultery, and shall marry another, committed adultery. Uh, sounds like you're stuttering. Moving on. Now, this word uh, would rule out sin committed before marriage, but the word pornea can have the wider meaning of general unchastity. Therefore, taking pornea in this sense is practically all admitted as possible. We may re-paraphrase the verse uh, uh, thus. Whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for unchastity, whether committed before or after marriage, and shall marry another, commits adultery. So all forms of, of sexual immorality are being covered. Joy, then Nick. Uh, that was the... Yes... So, <laughs> you find out after you're married that something happened before you were married, and that's proud? No, um, you get engaged. Oh, yes, let's get married. You're a wonderful person. Then you find out that he's sleeping around with one of the bridesmaids. Well, it's not adultery because we're not yet married. We were just engaged. No. Uh, the, the, the formal, and please understand that in the ancient world, the formal marriage contract. Uh, there was a period uh, during which you were betrothed, 
and then a period during which you were married. Uh, the period of betrothal was a period where a legal contract had already taken place. They were not yet married, but the, the contract had been entered into, so you could so break. It's, it's It's including both the time before and after uh, the marriage is taking place, the actual wedding ceremony. All after the legal contract is already taking place. After, yes. So, so the way we in modern society would consider it still after marriage, basically. Well, f for us, because we don't have the same idea of betrothal, the, 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 the woman uh, could point to, you know, if she finds out that uh, her supposed beloved has been up to hanky-panky before the marriage day, she'd point to it and say, I'm dissolving the engagement yeah. uh, at this point in time. But it wouldn't, please keep in mind that under our circumstances, unless you're like a royal house or something like that, generally speaking, there has been no exchange of property. Um, you know, there's, all of those things have not yet taken place. For us, it would be important, um, obviously, because uh, it would be an issue of church discipline uh, at that point in time. But then again, it would be an issue of church discipline if it was just fornication as well. So I guess that's an irrelevant point. Um, but moving on. So the, all of the legal stuff uh, around here and the idea of, because once you were, you were committed, once you were betrothed to somebody, the idea was you were going to get married unless there was something that broke that, uh, that covenant. So does that mean that if you get engaged, you're, it's unbiblical to break off that engagement even? Like at that point you are locked in? For no reason, yeah. It's always, it's always okay. wrong to make a covenant. That's why people should, you know, when you, when you ask. I think he's asking in our present context. Yeah, no, in our present context. If I make a covenant with somebody, I ask, will you marry me? They say yes. We begin making the plan. And you're like... Yeah, that was how I felt on Thursday, but yeah, it's Friday, and I just, you know, sorry, I was kidding. Well, let's not get married. You know, that, is it a sin to, to do that kind of, yes, it's sinful to do that kind of thing. So, but that's why you should be very careful about who you plan to marry. Yes? What if I, this is not extreme, but what if I ask someone to marry me, and then it's revealed that they're a famous serial killer that I didn't know about? Like, can I break off the engagement then? Yes, that would be a reason for, for breaking off the engagement. Okay, well, uh, I'm safe now. Well, I wouldn't be safe, but, you know. The, <laughs> moving to the next, don't marry serial killers. <laughs> this explains the use of the two different Greek words, porneia and moikia, in uh, Matthew 19.9, by no means requires us to take porneia in the sense of premarital impurity. So moving to the next. What Pornea does refer to then is sexual sin of any and all sorts by both married and unmarried people. Therefore, fornication is given as a reason for the dissolution of an engagement and divorce. Also, the scope of sexual sin is expanded outside of just intercourse with a third party during marriage to include all sexual relations outside of the marriage covenant, including what uh, Bill Clinton was claiming about uh, his relationship with uh, Monica Lewinsky. Um, that would have fulfilled the requirements for divorce. Yes, Todd. Yes, it is. Okay, moving to the the next. What are the marriages to of believers to unbelievers? This is the second point. Jesus does not address this issue. Paul is addressing the issue for the first time in the New Testament, hence his I, not the Lord. It is surprising that the Lord Jesus does not teach on mixed marriages 
which were simply not a part of the life uh, of life in the Jewish society in which his teaching ministry occurred. They were absolutely forbidden by the law of the Old Testament. Um, so moving to the next. But now these mixed marriages are happening frequently as the gospel spreads amongst the Gentiles, especially as a wife or a husband is converted, and occasionally as Jews, especially outside Palestine, marry pagans. We see an example of that in Acts 16.1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. That is Paul, obviously. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Next. The converted party might well contemplate divorce. This is a hard, a hard relationship to maintain. To have a believer married to a non-believer is constantly difficult. But Paul, again, is going to say, stay married even in this unequally yoked relationship, if you at all can. Moving to the next. Now, this is not saying that it is okay to consciously get unequally yoked. Uh, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Marry only in the Lord. So, moving to the next. Um, 2 Corinthians 6.14 is explicit on this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever moving to the next? So, but no doubt the Corinthians were concerned. Isn't such an unequal marriage defiling? After all, if I defile uh, and the church by, if I defile myself and the church by uniting myself to a prostitute, don't I also defile myself by a union with an unbeliever? Uh, the idea being that uh, a sexual union between the believer and the unbeliever is defiling. So moving to the next. Paul says no in marriage your holiness has a sanctifying effect in fact he says in verse 14 that the presence of a believing wife or a husband makes the children of such a marriage federally holy these children are not the same as the children of unbelievers which means we can do what with those children who are from a mixed marriage we can baptize them because they are within the covenant community yay Moving to <laughs> we've actually done that the promises are to them as well. Uh, they are like Paul's protege, Timothy, who was the product of a believing Jewish mother and an unbelieving Greek father. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.5, that when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I'm persuaded it is in you also, but not his dad, clearly. So next. Uh, these children as well are born members of the covenant on account of the faith of their parents, and that is why we baptize them. They are not born saved, no man is. And they too must personally embrace the promises. But these are the children of the church who are supposed to be being made holy, not the children of the world who live in darkness. The child of a believing parent is a covenant child. Uh, they're not the same as the children who are born in darkness. Moving to the next. Hopefully the sanctifying effect coupled with the preaching of the gospel might just lead to the conversion of the unbelieving spouse to Christ as well. Verse 16. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Going on, we've got one issue that we have to deal with. Uh, therefore, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay in the relationship, by all means do so. You have no right to desert them and gain nothing by doing so. But what if they leave you is going to be the question, obviously, that's uh, going to be raised. What if the unbeliever wants to go and is not content to stay in such a marriage? Believers trapped now into being perpetually married to someone who has deserted them and probably even obtained a legal divorce themselves. Are they going to have to develop the gift of singleness in a hurry? Can we do that? No. Uh, Paul says no. He answers, moving to the next. Paul now indicates to us that there is 
One other circumstance in which a divorce may legally occur other than adultery, that is the desertion of a believer by an unbeliever. All right, so next. If an unbeliever deserts his believing spouse, the marriage bond is dissolved. He or she is not in bondage or bound in such a situation. In that sense, his or her situation is similar to that of the person whose spouse has died. Uh, while he lived, they are bound to them, but when they die, they are loosed. After the desertion, the person is also loosed. They are not dulu, a word meaning enslaved. Uh, they're not in bondage. Um, Dave, I want to ask, do you want to take the kids for a short conversation, or do you want to continue on and we'll have our conversation here? Keep going. All right. The believer may allow them to go and is free to marry again. This is the position taken, for instance, by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, nothing but adultery or such will... Why, why am I doing all the reading? Joy, can you read that, please? Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public an orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it are not, uh, in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Now, this is something that many Reformed people get very upset about. Who does it say is involved in marriage here? The civil magistrate. <gasps> the civil magistrate. Okay, from the very beginning, um, believe it or not, the assumption, cancer, the, uh, the assumption is made that the civil magistrate will be involved in marriages. Okay? One is to make sure that they don't fall apart. And Graham, I know you have your eyes closed even though you have your sunglasses on. <laughs> I know. All right, so um, the, uh, I just didn't want him to think I was fooled. The, um, in any event, uh, what, what kind of things does the civil magistrate have to work out? Yes? Well, in the divorce, in this circumstance, the financial remuneration yeah. in regards to the Who gets what? Even in Rome society, that was still something that the courts would, uh, would deal with. If the guy kept the dowry, for instance, uh, who was going to interfere? The courts. They were going to come down like a ton of bricks. Um, the, also, the issue of what happens with the children. Okay, that's something that uh, the, the civil magistrate has to, has to be in, involved in. Uh, because generally speaking, people who are getting divorced, are they on good terms and work things out really nicely and agree about everything? And as a general rule, they never do. No. Um, so, it, I mean, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are a great example of exactly how people feel about one another. Yeah, no, I mean, there you have two unbelievers, yeah, treating each other with unbelieving kind of yuck. All right, moving on to the next. 1 Corinthians 7.15, the passage in question is cited as a proof text for this conclusion. What does 1 Corinthians 7.15 say? You said go to Matthew. I know. Go back to Matthew. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 7.15. What do it say? I'll tell you what it says. <laughs> it says... But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay? We are not in bondage. We are not. Uh, so they're making that, that point. If we're called to live in peace, therefore, rather than kicking up a stink, we are called to live in peace and be content even if we aren't happy about them going. All right? So we can't grab their leg and attempt to uh, force them to stay. Like that. Moving on. 
passage not only gives us guidance regarding marriage, it highlights the differences between the married unbelievers and, or rather, believers and unbelievers. We have said that all unequally yoked marriage is a difficult relationship to maintain. This is true not only for the believer, but for the unbeliever as well. I've got a quote here. Uh, Roger Ellsworth shared this anecdote. When asked what made his marriage so difficult now that his wife was a Christian, one man replied, firstly, she was no longer the person he had met and fallen in love with, and secondly, there was now another man around the house, and she was constantly talking about him and seeking his guidance. Who was that? Jesus. Yeah, so Jesus suddenly. Jesus changes everything within uh, that relationship. All right, so moving to the next, I think. That's it. That's it. Wonderful. Okay. So, what are the three reasons that Paul outlines for a divorce to take place? Sexual, unchastity. Yes, John? Okay, the unbeliever leaving. Yes? Death. Yeah, that would be a that would be a, a good reason. Uh, for the marriage to be over. Um, otherwise, we are supposed to do what? Endure. Stay married and endure. Endure. <laughs> Endeavor to persevere is the, uh, um, is the commandment. One of the things that we need to note and discuss with other people is this was not the opinion of the ancient world. Okay? The ancient world had a very loose view of divorce. It's a general rule. They always have. Christianity brought in the higher view. Why? Why is it so important? Why is divorce so antithetical to the Christian worldview? Yes, joy and more. Let's get let Grammy have a go in it. Okay. Because it's a breaking of the bond between uh, the symbolic bond between the church and Jesus Christ. Right. It's the equivalent of either a church going apostate. Right. Or or betrayal by the Lord. You know, if, uh, if your marriage is supposed to be a, a picture of Christ's union with, with the church, if Christ leaves the church, that's unspeakable or unthinkable. And if the church leaves Christ, that's apostasy. Either way, it's a, um, it's a destroying of the model that was given. It's a breaking of the covenant, obviously, that exists there. We can list all sorts of pragmatic reasons why divorce is a, uh, is, is a problem. Even the Romans understood that there were pragmatic reasons why divorce was uh, harmful to society. Do we believe that anymore, though? No. We, well, Joy's nodding her head. We do believe that? I mean, we believe that in this room. Yes. Right. It's really going to depend on the, the subset of people that you're looking at. Yes. Well, so our, our modern-day society is unfortunately a lot more like Corinthian Rome in terms of its uh, mores and its legal uh, standards. Christianity changed everything in the Roman Empire, and now as Christianity is being evacuated from our society, everything unfortunately is resetting to the Roman standard. And that includes obviously marriage, divorce, uh, all of those questions. And there's a lot of other things that we see are resetting, infanticide, and euthanasia are suddenly okay. What are some of the other things we can expect to happen um, uh, if we reset back to the Roman standards that Christianity changed? 
Yeah, blood sports, um, uh, very, very loose views towards violence, um, you know, that kind of thing. Other things? Yes? Okay, historically, that yeah, that, that's an outcome of what happens when the yeah the empire declines. Yeah. Yes, uh, totalitarianism. Uh, once you have the idea that people um, don't have to, there's no inner moral and religious principle dominating them and driving their affections. What do they insist on? Outside control, which is what we're you know. Nobody should have a gun because I can't control myself and my, my, uh, my drives. Therefore, take the guns away um, and take everything away. That uh, Everything is either banned or required or mandated. Yes, Greg? But is a dictator or a monarch necessarily bad? Is a dictator or a monarch necessarily bad? If I answer that a monarch is necessarily bad, I think I'm guilty of treason. So... Uh, <laughs> I, I um, so someone elects themselves like, She's very nice. We all love her. Rhoda seems to have some answers to this, and Jamie does as well. Don't worry, Rhoda. This will be the first time. Jamie? Don't worry, I'll do it right. I would say, that, at least in the case of British, that their monarch, uh, their monarchy was by the consent of the government. The people had some say in who the monarchy was. It, it has long been a constitutional monarchy since a little thing called uh, Magna Carta running me. You know, the, the power of the, uh, the, the uh, so king was restrained. You know, it's not just in America that government is by the consent of the government. It's actually all over the world. If in any country in the world, if all the people rose up against the leaders, leaders would be none. Uh, and so, you know, considering the government is not some, you know, high you know, Right, but generally speaking, once the, uh, the concept of uh, an inner uh, principle of morality is gone from the society, uh, the lawlessness that results generally requires that um, you have a totalitarian system uh, bringing down the sledgehammer on people. This was something that um, uh, Christians understood in the founding of the United States. So you had, for instance, uh, the famous statement by John Adams uh, to the officer corps of the Massachusetts um, militia uh, when he pointed out that uh, that the um, constitution was made for a moral and religious people that is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. Uh, and then he, he uh, said that the passions of uh, an unrestrained people, and I see that hand tie, uh, would go through the, the um, uh, restraints of the constitution like a whale going through a net. Uh, that if everybody did whatever they wanted, then the constitution is not uh, sufficient for uh, their governance. Um, a man by the name of uh, Winthrop, who, uh, interestingly enough, became the Speaker of the House of Representatives, he was another Massachusetts politician, uh, stated also that people will have to be governed either by a principle within them or without them. And he said, simply, it boils down to this, it will either be the, uh, the Bible or the bayonet, one or the other. But you cannot have any moral people governing themselves. It just does not work. Why? 
Yeah, because they'll do whatever they want and they will injure other people in the, uh, in the midst of it. Unless you have an inner principle that says at least do unto others as you would have them do unto you, okay, uh, then that's, that's got to be the, at least the majority opinion. Ty, you had your... Um, um, I have a question. What, what is the remedy for people who are for example, if... And an unbeliever? Well, two, between beliefs, but okay. Reconciliation is not possible. Yeah. There are occasionally, um, although I've got to tell you this, the bizarre thing is it's more often the case um, that um, where one party wants to reconcile, uh, that uh, you'll, you'll find the other party willing to reconcile even if they shouldn't be. So for instance, what I mean by that is uh, I've had several cases uh, where the woman is married to a serial adulterer. And you're telling her, no, he's actually had several chances to repent and, and you shouldn't give him another, but I want him and this is the father of my children and blah, 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 blah. Let's try it again. <sighs> All right, let's try it again. And, oh, look at that. I just knocked the thing off. <laughs> so, um, and it happens again. And, you know, you go through that cycle. Um, if one party desires reconciliation, but the other one is saying, no, I can never trust you again, and so on, getting a, a divorce, you betrayed, the, you broke the marriage covenant, you can't say to the party that wants the divorce, I'm sorry, you must give him another chance. There's no, or give her another chance. Um, I think in Ty's case, you say it wasn't a matter of sexual morality. Okay. If two believers got divorced one, for one, they uh, sinned. Uh -huh. Aha. Okay. Is that right, Ty? Right. Yeah. They, they, they both got divorced for unbiblical reasons. Okay. Now one of them, I guess, is convicted about it and wants to get back together, but the other person doesn't. Yeah. So how do you... Well... Right, if they're already divorced, um, then and they want to get back together, it's, uh, it's one of those difficult positions where they should be reconciled, but you can't force the other person against their will to remarry. So if they are divorced, is that person, is she or he now? Committing adultery if they marry another person? Right. Technically speaking, if two people get divorced for um, uh, unbiblical reasons and then marry other people, have they committed adultery? Yes, they have committed adultery. But the one thing that we do remember is, is there forgiveness available for adulterers? Yes, upon repentance and belief. There's no sin that we can, I mean, even murder is a sin that can be forgiven by uh, the Lord. So, um, but has sin occurred at that point in time? Yes. Did sin occur when they got a divorce for less than biblical reasons? Yes. So, um, does that answer the question? Well, yeah, but, all right, here's the thing. We don't sin saying I'll repent of it later. Okay, that's the, that's the old, uh, you know, Catholic confessional thing. Uh, well, I'm going to commit adultery, but don't worry, I'll talk to the priest about it later. <laughs> the, uh, I'll repent later. Uh, that, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not true repentance. If our heart is, is, is honestly sorry about those things. 
But there are circumstances, I mean, circumstances arise in which repentance and reconciliation, uh, full reconciliation becomes impossible. For instance, two people, two, and this is more uh, commonly the reason, uh, two uh, unbelievers get divorced for unbiblical reasons, marry other people. They both become believers later on. Well, they can't remarry because they've married other people. So, you know, the, uh, it's a, uh, you know, you have to deal with the, you have to sleep in the bed you've made at that point in time. So, yes, Reagan? If he was the innocent party, I would remarry him. If he was not an innocent party, I would not. But if they were unbelievers, I've remarried people, I have married people who uh, divorced while they were unbelievers and after they became. Yes, the, the divorce is. Generally speaking, if, uh, if I believe that we have uh, a person who got divorced for an unbiblical reason and now they're seeking to get married, I will not. Uh, and they've maintained that they're believers, and they were when they, when they got divorced. Uh, I'm not going to remarry them uh, as a general rule. Yes? So to her question, it would make sense if you remarried them because technically if you tried to re reconcile the marriage, wouldn't it count as abandonment on her hand if she did uh, accept the reconciliation? And they've already been apart, so like they've already been divorced. So one refuses to reconcile. Right. But they've already been divorced. So the, the yeah, the divorce situation. Yeah, he's trying to no, I, if, um, if it would create an adulterous situation, I don't, uh, I'm not going to uh, remarry them. Uh, I have, as I said, I've conducted marriages for people who got divorces while they were unbelievers, and they divorced for unbiblical reasons, but I can't hold unbelievers to the same standard that I hold believers, because you're a new creation in Christ. However, I will hold believers, or professing believers, to a very high standard. So, uh, it it would have to be, I, I would need to see the circumstances more than just an open hypothetical, but generally speaking, I will not uh, remarry people who are professing believers who have gotten married for, or divorced for unbiblical reasons. So, uh, Jamie. And I would say that, you know, your last point there about the hypothetical, when you look at real-world examples, there's a lot more details mm -hmm. when you bring in you know, a session and they make, they make a decision you know, they counsel, and counsel me there's wisdom um, and you sort of need it, it's good to have, I mean, you need to make a decision it's in the real world so there's the real world details and there's help you to make those decisions. It's hard to, to deal with these in a hypothetical because so much of the context is not there. Yeah, I mean there, there are certain circumstances where one size fits all, you know um, there, there are sins that are so gross, it's easy to, you know, make a, uh, a blanket statement about them. But there are other sins uh, where you do have to actually uh, judge. Otherwise, you wouldn't need courts of the church. Um, anybody can make the decision. Wrote it? Is, is your hand? You're, okay, just touching that. All right, any final questions about the issues that we've talked about? No? Okay. Well, then let's 
go and do our prayer requests and can we bye everybody